This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, this is Kevin Lindsay, co-host of the Systems and Cybernetics podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, it's my pleasure to be in conversation with Dr. Martin Reynolds, who is co-editor, along with Sue Holwell, of Systems Approaches to Making Change, a practical guide, second edition published in 2020 by Springer. Martin Reynolds is a co-founding member of and lead academic liaison for the Applied Systems Thinking in Practice, or ASTEP, at the Open University in the UK. Martin received his degree in liberal studies in science at the University of Manchester in 1978 and gained his PhD in international development at the Institute for International Development Policy and Management at the University of Manchester in 98. In the interim, he taught science at senior secondary schools in London and in Botswana. Martin has been actively involved with UN initiatives in developing systems for supporting the implementation of sustainable development goals and collaborated with colleagues from social enterprise impact hubs in developing learning systems for effective monitoring and evaluation. Good day, Martin, and thanks very much for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Thanks. Yeah, pleasure is all mine. So I'd like to start the conversation by hearing a bit more about you. I'd love you to talk about how you developed an interest in systems thinking, what drew you to it, and Talk a little bit about your particular areas of, of interest, maybe where you've seen the most potential at, for and an impact from systems thinking. Yeah, sure. The um, My interest in systems thinking actually came from my PhD, my doctorate studies at the Institute for Development Policy and Management. And there I was studying the... Um, the implementation of participatory rural appraisal in Botswana, a country that I, 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 I knew very well. And it was at a time in the 1990s when they were uh, exploring quite voraciously the ideas of participatory development. And there was um, a particular uh, appraisal technique called participatory rural appraisal, uh, Robert Chambers' work. Um, which was being implemented, and it had a lot of political connotations to it. 
which um, in the development field at that particular time, in the early 1990s, didn't really have a critical aspect to it. Now, um, I, I became aware during my, my studies for the Masters of institute, uh, at the Institute for Development Policy and Management of, of a, a, a small systems course on soft systems methodology. Um, actually presented by a, a, a colleague of mine from the Open University, a very close colleague of mine, Simon Bell, who, as it turned out uh, in later years. And so I saw some uh, sort of synchrony between the participatory rural appraisal and the soft systems methodology. And then within this, when I started looking at the systems uh, approaches, I saw that there was some very interesting stuff on critical systems thinking, which was given a, a you know a more political, ethical angle on soft mm. systems thinking, which um, provided the tools for me to then provide a critique of participatory rural appraisal. Got it. Um, so. I think the the journey. Whenever I talk to to um, you know folks like you who have had such a long journey in in systems thinking, it it seems to me that there was a lot of um, a lot of experiences that really kind of shape and inform you know your use of of the theory, your use of of the models when you're when you're kind of out there in 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 the field. So I'd love to hear um, about you know you, you talk about the intervening years you were you were teaching in in Botswana obviously you would have been um, teaching within a very distant different system than um, that which you had experienced in in the UK what are some of the things that maybe informed you from the the outside if you will yeah the the it was mostly actually it's not so much in the teaching experience of uh, of Botswana but it was observing what was going on around me I spent 10 years teaching uh, at a secondary school teaching science uh, in Botswana. Um, but it, it came to my notice that um, there were a lot of development agencies working in Botswana um, under the, 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 the sort of main rubric, if you like, of alleviating poverty. There's a lot of uh, money and human resources going into Botswana, which at the time, and still is actually a very... Uh, uh, low populated country, but but having quite high levels of particularly rural poverty, um, and it struck me that there was a lot of investment into rural poverty uh, by international day aid agencies. A lot of goodwill going on, but with very little actual effect so clearly there was something going wrong with the system and um i think it was that that, that kind of uh, sort of seeded something in my mind about well how is it that you can try and get over this eternal problem of um of matching the very good will for development policies in general with uh, more positive outcomes um, so it spoke to the, to the sort of notions of, of systemic failure, as we would sort of understand it now. And, and what what is it that causes that recurring sort of cycle of events, cycle of activities that actually don't alleviate poverty, don't address the the initial aim or the wider aim of the of the of the system, but in fact just perpetuates it. 
And so I was interested in looking at that, you know, as, as, a, as a kind of a system, I guess. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So when we were setting up this conversation, you mentioned to me that um, Open University was recognizing, uh, celebrating, I think, uh, is it 50 years of, of, of systems right. thinking? 50 years, yeah. Um, so, and I appreciate the invitation. Unfortunately, that was I think four o'clock in the morning for me uh, here in California. I had great aspirations uh, for setting my clock and and getting up and joining you, but alas, I did not. Um, so I was just wondering if you could, uh, you know, share some highlights from that. Like what, what you know, what have uh, I guess you, have you come to after after fifty years? Were there any interesting revelations or or highlights uh, from the event you'd want to well, share? I should certainly. Um, I certainly should say I haven't been there for 50 years, but it's 50 years of, <laughs> right. um, of, of the, the, the starting of a, a systems group of practitioners. So the yeah. Open University is a, a distance learning uh, university. It's the first distance learning, of, a distance learning university, I think, in the world of, of open supported distance learning. That started in 1969. And then in 1971, there was um, fairly shortly after the, the start of the OU, there was a group of practitioners coming together and were interested in using systems thinking ideas and developing courses around that. So it became a, there was a systems group, and that group now it has its current incarnation, and as you mentioned in the introduction of the um, Applied Systems Thinking in Practice group, the ASTIP group. Um, which I'm one of the the academics uh, representing that group. So in the the course of those 50 years, um, the OU produced uh, a series of undergraduate courses to start with um, initially and um, around around systems thinking and very explicit just on, on systems thinking. And so it provided um, uh, mature age uh, 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 undergraduates or, or, or scholars, if you like, to um, to use systems thinking ideas for uh, for their for their practice. Now, I joined in 20, 2000, 2001, around about then, and um, there was still just the undergraduate program. So after I started there, and or shortly after I started at the Open University. I worked with colleagues, including Ray Eisen and Magnus Ramage and uh, Sue Holwell, amongst others, Chris Blackmore. Um, on, we started working on a postgraduate program of systems thinking in practice. And that sort of kicked off in 2009. Um, in fact, we started the, the preparation for that around about 2006, 2007. There's the, for Open University courses, there's quite a long lead-in time for, uh, for the development phase. And so when we started thinking about the, um, the, the postgraduate work, we saw that there was, uh, there was a gap in the, in, the, in, the, in the market, if you like, in the offerings around um, a concise sort of... Uh, publication on, um, on, on, on some key systems approaches. And so that it's through the development of that course in systems thinking in practice, one of the core modules there, one of the two core modules, um, was associated with um, strategic, making strategy. 
uh, strategic thinking and um, and and the the first edition of systems approaches was the main core reader for that. Another colleague of mine, yeah. Magnus Ramage, um, co-edited um, a, 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 or co-authored a book um, on systems thinkers as well, which coupled systems approaches quite nicely, gave a, a sort of a nice um, uh, complement to it. Yeah, got it. So let's let's get down to talking about the book. Um, and uh, you include the preface to the first edition, uh, which, as you as you said uh, or indicated, you know it's about ten years uh, since since that one came out, since the first edition came out. Um, but you say this book is about intervention, or more or more precisely, how to improve human intervention to help change situations for the better, to navigate the interrelated dimensions of making more effective strategic decisions in the twenty first century. So what a difference a decade makes, of course. And while we're dealing with, we were dealing with some pretty big stuff back in, in 2010. We always, in the moment, think we we are. We are now, uh, you know, much more aware of and, and living every day with multiple crises that highlight the need for change. Uh, so, you know, 2020, I mean, it's it's just you know, it's such a meme, of, of course. Um, so talk about the need for systems thinking today. How how can it help change makers? And you can you can talk about this from the the vantage where you know you, you where you from where you now sit. Uh, you can also maybe draw on on what you were thinking. You know when you put this together back uh, in the first edition. Um, yeah, I mean to be honest, I don't think there's been a huge amount of change as far as the the nature of the change that's required. Um, it's just that I think that people are more alert to the kind of complexities of the change that are that is is out there, if you like, and that we're, that we're dealing with. Um, I think people are becoming much more what we call sort of systemically aware of the interconnections between various different factors out there in the flux of what we call the flux of events, people and ideas that are ongoing. And in my mind's eye, actually, that flux has not really changed. It's always been there. There's always mm. things mm-hmm. going on. Um, and they, you know, the, the changes of, of, of ideas, there's change of personality, change of, 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 uh, of perspectives, and indeed changing of, of different factors. Um, you know, the, the whole technology of our world is is changing quite quite rapidly um but technical change in itself is not a new thing it's just a different quality if you like so one of the things that i think that's that's come out from the last 10 years in particular is that growing uh growing systemic sensibility and, and we sort of refer to it as trying to retrieve a systemic sensibility. Children actually have a, a fantastic right. systemic right. sensibility. They they know that things are connected together. They ask the right questions because they're always going up um, levels of systems. You know, when they're asking their, their yeah. parents why, 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 it's each successive why question, which can be quite irritating for parents and for teachers. Right, but it's actually <laughs> yes, it's demonstrating actually quite nice systemic sensibilities because it's and 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 you you can always continue to go up. And you know, I would claim, and my colleagues would claim that we is, is, we don't ask that question enough at this, this time. Mm. Um, 
Complexity, I mean, if I can just also add to that, uh, Kevin, I mean, complexity science has been a really significant input as well in the last 10 years because the development of complexity science has demonstrated two things. First of all, it's demonstrated that just about everything is connected, um, that you can't just isolate one set of incidences from another. Things are all interconnected. And the other thing about yes. complexity science that, that I find really quite quite helpful is the humility that's been part of that process. That um, even though it's it's a science and it likes to be fairly well defined in in getting to the truth, um, there's a nice humility around it, which suggests that you know you're never going to get the absolute truth. But um, a lot of these things do actually depend on the perspectives, the lens through which you Mm -hmm. are viewing those sets of uh, interconnections. And context, which you write about um, in in the book as well. So uh, I found that interesting. So we've definitely increased our, our, our systemic sensibility. I like what you said about retrieving that systemic sensibility. I, I recently had the chance to speak with Tyson Yonkaporta, who um, writes about uh, indigenous thinking, and in his book Sand Talk, and uh, which which definitely uh, leads one to believe that you know retrieving that system sensibility also means kind of thinking. Um, about the traditional cultures and and you know those that who've come before us for thousands of years who've actually had a lot of that that sensibility already and maybe and maybe we're uh, ignoring it and that's kind of where I want to I guess take this this question is all right so we've 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 are, we've got this heightened sensibility around it but how are we doing organizationally and societally are, are we are we acting on that are we doing something about it or are we ignoring it. Um. Sadly, <laughs> I don't think we, I mean we're certainly not doing enough. The the sound bites are there, um, certainly in the in the press and in parliamentary talk. You're you're here talk of systemic failure a lot more these days. Um, indeed, you're you're here a lot more sort of advocacy for systems thinking. Um, one of the problems I think that there is. Uh, in people's conception of systems thinking is it it tends to be quite narrowly defined. Um, The most common sort of understanding of systems thinking is to equate it with holistic thinking. So getting the bigger picture, you know, um, appreciating that everything everything is connected. As I said before, with complexity science that has demonstrated that. And so the 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 only issue really is to try and get a bigger picture of what's going on. And the um, the most common form of uh, systems thinking that addresses that is is this approach called system dynamics, which is one of the five approaches in in the book. Yeah. Really important, fantastic for for um, trying to get to see what the uh, what those interrelationships are, um, and and talking about those interrelationships in terms of causal factors and and trying to observe patterns um, out there in terms of these kind of dynamics is really quite very, very helpful. But that's only part of the issue of systems thinking. 
Um, the other issue with systems thinking is trying to get people's perspectives to engage with with each other. Because however much we try to um, try, try to uh, render the interconnections that are around us through things like systems maps, influence diagrams, causal loop diagrams, systems modeling, indeed. Um, they are coming at a they are coming at that rendering from a particular perspective or set of perspectives. And the most important thing, it seems to me, is how you can engage other perspectives mm-hmm. in relation mm-hmm. to that problem situation. Now you talked very, uh, very, very, uh, very well actually about the kind of systemic sensibilities of a lot of um, a lot of communities that are already out there in the world. I mean, tribal uh, communities. There's been ancestral work um, that's 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 you know rife with with good systemic stuff out there. <laughs> I mean, the problem yeah. has been how it's been communicated, how those perspectives have been. Uh, recognized or indeed not recognized within the Western framework right. of rational thinking. So, right. uh, you know, the biggest challenge, it seems to me, still with systems thinking is that although you can have the rhetoric of um, of advocating for systems thinking, um, it doesn't match the practice. And the practice is really essentially about trying to engage with people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you, you talk about the traps in conventional thinking that it, it seems like we, we just we fall into these traps. So while there might be, you know, efforts and like you said, in the media, there, there are these sound bites and we all sort of buy into this concept. Like, I, you know, the, the pandemic has underscored so many interesting things um, from a systems perspective. Uh, those who were and continue to be most affected who who are on the margins and and you know why are they on the margins what are what are we doing and how is this how is the system failing them and 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 putting them in that vulnerable position so i think that that in the mainstream there is a much better understanding um but you know you and i were talking before uh before we began um the interview just around you know, opening up and uh, the the anxiety and 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 that kind of thing, and, and to what extent it'll be a really interesting, you know, exercise in in um, in, in hum- a human experiment really just to see how much we um, you know bring some of this new sensibility back to how we act, um, or or do we fall into this conventional thinking or you act in that way you know what are your thoughts yeah well i mean it's it, and it did come out quite clearly with the pandemic i mean the pandemic was very good in the sense of, <laughs> as far as it can be good in in the sense that it did um relay the importance of of uh trying to make sense of of data and and the meaning behind the data so you would have a lot of scientists given the platform quite rightly in trying to um, ascertain what was going on in the pandemic and trying to relay that to, um, first of all, to to politicians and to policymakers, but also, of course, trying to relay it, much more importantly, um, Mm -hmm. to to the general civil society. Um, And that's where where there are are huge problems arising. You can come out with incredibly good models 
um, showing the the dynamics of a, of a particular situation. But if it's not, if it's being understood in a particular way um, that that isn't conducive to trying to solve the problem, then then you've got to question it. Um, one of the things that, mm. that that I think is really important with 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 that sort of quantitative modelling that's going on with the system dynamics field is to try to understand the assumptions because any modelling exercise has assumptions built into it. It has biases. Um, and one of the yeah. interesting things about systems thinking in that top level uh, idea of systems thinking is that it does provide people the tools to question the boundaries which are being constructed to provide the data, the models. Um, so, right. you know, that even though you can be absolutely blinded by the numbers game that it often comes out from the modeling exercises, particularly prevalent within the pandemic exercise, systems thinking provides you with the tools, or good systems thinking anyway, provides you with the tools to question where those judgments are being made, because essentially they're about boundary judgments. And that's essentially what, yeah. what systems thinking is about, yeah. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I, I want to come back to that uh, because you know obviously the uh, you know the the one of the approaches that you that you talk about um, is, is 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 yours. Uh, well, I, you know it's the one you write on um, with Werner Ulrich um, at, toward the end of the book. Um, and I, I, I you know I, I want to make sure we have some time to discuss that. We'll come back to that. But before we go too much further, I really appreciated the uh, the distinctions that you drew between messes and, and difficulties. And we were just talking about the, the pandemic and, and, you know, obviously, you know, it's easy to throw around words, but why is it important for us to, to understand the difference between messes and, and difficulties in, in terms of some of these things we're dealing with? Well, it's, it's, it's a question of language, um, but often anything else. When you talk of difficulties, you, you are talking, again, you have sort of built-in assumptions about what the, what the, what the problem situation actually is. Um, and as soon as you start talking even about problems, it's somebody's problem. It is, it's already a defined thing. So you've got to sort of step back, as the child does, and say, well, Why? Whose problem actually is it <laughs> in many cases? Um, and I think th- that's where the distinction between difficulties and messes comes in very helpful, I think, because as soon as you start talking about difficulties, then you are talking about something that has been bounded. Somebody has bounded it as a system. And at the end of the day, a system is a human construct. It's not something that exists out there in the world. 
outside right. of our, uh, our our own outside of our own perception. It is a perception. It's a bounded thing. And of course, the reality of the stuff out there in the world is it's unbounded. You know, it's mm-hmm. humans that do the bounding for that. So it's humans that create the the systems to make sense of the situation. I mean, another big difference that we use at the Open University is the difference between a situation of interest and a system of interest. Now, a situation of interest is the mess. It's the flux of events, people, ideas, that continual um, goings on of the of that wonderful world that we all live in. Um, but a system of interest is actually then bounding something up. Somebody's defined it as a problem or as a difficulty. And that, that's okay, but you've got to then sort of start questioning, well, where did those boundary judgments actually come from? Whose boundary judgments are, are they? Yeah. And what are the consequences? Because once you start right. making a boundary judgment of a system, then you've got all sorts of assumptions about the subsystems, which are the activities yeah. within that system. And so, and each one of those subsystems has a boundary to them. And you can start questioning those boundary judgments as well. So it's really important that, that mm. difference between mm-hmm. difficulty and a mess, I think is absolutely essential in systems thinking to clarify, yeah. Yeah, that, keep that alert, is- that difference and alive. Very useful explanation. Um, I, I really appreciate that. I think the listeners will as well. Um, I think that that boundary definition and the sort of, you know, uh, how you're how you're constructing, how we're constructing the so-called that so-called system is is really important to understand, um, you know, what goes into into making that actually. Can I just um, can I just thing. add something to that, Kevin? As well? mm-hmm. I mean, because there Please. is quite an interesting tradition, but I mean, particularly in 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 the United States, I think, where um, where a lot of the systems thinking is very much closely associated with ideas of complex adaptive systems. And there's a lot of literature around that. And, and the complex adaptive systems has come from and it's evolved from, um, from ideas of, of complexity science. Some wonderful, wonderful work going on there. But when people are referring to complex adaptive systems, um, Again, it's it's that problem of, of language because as soon as you start thinking of a complex adaptive system as a natural as being equated to something naturally existing, which is where its derivation is from, um, then you've got to be honest with yourself about the derivation of, of that of that terminology, as it were, because the complex adaptive system is very often used, it's trans, transferred from the, from the natural world into the social world. And again, it's, it can be a very useful um, yeah. translation, but it's a metaphor, it's another rendering of the situation. I think people are going to continually be alert to that. I see, yeah. I think you you you've provided an explanation for for something I was I was curious about you you and you have a section called systems or social contracts, and uh, I I think that's that's kind of what you were alluding to here and and how it, how it manifests how it manifests out there in 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 reality with people human beings yeah yeah um so you know you you mentioned that the book was originally uh, created. Uh, as a as a as a text for students uh, systems thing and and I I can really see that now um, you know the I love the influence diagram that you provide um, I think this is a great book for people who are who are new and trying to to make their way 
into and around um, systems thinking. But you know, the the influence diagram of different systems of traditions that that shape contemporary systems practice. Um, just you know, I, again, I, I encourage listeners to read the book and 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 see that diagram for themselves. But if if you were talking to someone who uh, is relatively new to systems thinking, and you were to provide a just a, a short, simple explanation of this family tree, um, how would you do that? Like, you know, what are what are basically the ways that we should be thinking about or categorizing the the, the influences? Yeah, this I mean, the influence diagram you're referring to is the one drawn by my close colleague Ray Eisen. Um, it is it's, it's a fascinating sort of diagram showing the various different uh, key influences on systems thinking coming from things like uh, complexity science, complex adaptive systems. But um, in particular, the, the emphasis is there on, on cybernetics and uh, second order cybernetics, absolutely key traditions of, of thinking. Um, the way in which we have structured the book um uh Sue Holwell, this is and uh, myself, um, is to kind of congest those influences into three different um groups. And these are the three groups which are very much associated with what Joel Midgley and uh and, and Mike Jackson have called the um the three waves of, of systems thinking. I mean they they sort of looked at the history of systems thinking. Um, in, in following these three different phases. So there's hard systems, soft systems, and critical systems. Now, for me, the important thing there is not so much the, um, the, the categorization of those particular systems uh, traditions, um, but it's, it's, the, it's the emphasis given within each one of those traditions for a particular aspect of systems thinking. So in the introduction and, and more in the, in the epilogue, um, we've, we've articulated the, um, a, a heuristic of systems thinking in practice, um, which is centered around these, those three core elements of systems thinking. And they are, first of all, understanding interrelationships. So the stuff about getting the bigger picture, the system dynamics, all that sort of stuff. Um, the second uh, aspect is, is engaging with multiple perspectives, what we were talking about before, that, that often, you know, that absolutely significant part of, of systems thinking, which sometimes gets waylaid, that we, we're talking about different perspectives and how to engage with those different perspectives. It's not just surfacing and allowing for those perspectives, being inclusive, being participatory, but it's about actually how to engage with them in a very purposeful mm -hmm. way. And the third tradition is around actually reflecting, critically reflecting on the boundaries of the tools, of the systems that we are devising. If we accept the principle that systems are bounded constructs, they are bounded because we make judgments about them based on value judgments and based on factual judgments. And, and, and these are judgments of reality, if you like, perception and so forth. And so all the bounded ideas that we have in systems thinking must always be open to change. And, and there must be always that kind of continual learning about the systems that we are dealing with. 
And that's why we talk about um, systems thinking in terms of learning systems rather than as engineered right. sort of reified systems. They're right. learning systems. And this is where the idea of adaptability comes in as well. So going back to your question about the categorization of these different systems approaches that Ray Eisen and others have, have mapped out, uh, we've mapped out those five systems approaches, um, which are the yeah. system dynamics, the viable system model, the um, soft, uh, sorry, strategic options development analysis, soft systems methodology and critical systems thinking now or critical systems yeah. heuristics and we've sort of allocated in within those three different yeah. traditional patterns yeah i love that and you know so first of all i think that the that three-part heuristic is just such a a great way to understand and sort of frame how you know if i want to do systems thinking and 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 bring those practices to my organization or to my the, the causes I am involved in, uh, my activist work or my change work, work making work. Um, I, I think that, you know, coming down to those key elements and then, you know, you don't need to understand all the entire who's who of, of systems thinking and, and cybernetics. It, 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 you know, it, it, the, the work has built upon, you know, and uh, the, the work of previous people who've come previously and evolved. And I think that these three elements that you've described are, are sort of like the, the, the right frame. I love threes, by the way, three is <laughs> a good number for me in terms of my ability to sort of take things in and, and understand yeah, things. So I really appreciate it. The key thing about this, I think, Kevin, is that it gives people the agency um, to, to muck about and play with the ideas coming from these yeah. systems traditions. Yeah, yeah. So those three aspects of systems thinking in practice just provide a, a very general um, shell mm -hmm. framework in which they can take yeah. tools from different systems approaches and see how they may um, contribute towards either yeah. understanding yeah. relationships, engaging with the perspectives or reflecting on the boundary judgments, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. and, and there's that well, I, and I think this is a very useful conversation for me and I think for for anyone listening because you know I reading about the five the five approaches um I I come away from that and and wonder hmm I like I like bits of that one I like bits of this one and how do I uh, combine it does it make sense to sort of combine approaches uh depending on context or or the situation or the maturity of the organization within uh, which I'm 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 working. Have I got the right idea? Well, yeah. Except you've missed out one really key factor there, and it's how you choose them, how you adapt them according to your own personal experiences. Every every one of us have our own sort of uh, trajectory of life experiences in which we um, become accustomed to using particular tools in particular ways. And for me, the most important aspect of using tools is not so much the tools themselves, it's the tools users. Right. You know, a very good colleague yeah. of mine who contributed to the systems group uh, a long time ago, John Martin, um, talks very recently, actually, even at the last um, anniversary event that we had that you missed, that you slept through. <laughs> uh, but John Martin sort of mentioned that there was something missing about the, um, about the ideas being conveyed there. And these were ideas coming about complex adaptive systems. It just happened to be with uh, Glenda O. Young. 
um, there was the missing element there, which was the tool users. How do you how do you mm-hmm. account mm-hmm. for that? How do you customize? And of course, you can't. You can't possibly um, uh, uh, sort of program or advise on somebody's experiences. All you can do, and this yeah. is what we do in this in our systems thinking in practice postgraduate program, is we provide our students with the with the tools. And it's not just the tools from, from these five systems approaches, the other tools as well. But they're allowed to play with them according to their own experiences, according to their own particular professional backgrounds. And they come from all over the place, uh, as yeah. our students in any one cohort. And then they share their experiences with each other um, in, 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 the, in the course when they're, when they're in that safe space with the Open University. Um, and it's that that sharing of their experiences of using these these tools where the where the learning comes up. And I have mm-hmm. to say also, mm-hmm. it's you know reading the dissertations and the and the and the and the work that comes out from the students. There's a huge amount of learning from us as well, and it's fantastic stuff, that, uh, mm-hmm. inventive stuff that they come up with. Yeah, uh, yeah I love it. In the um the viable system model chapter, um, Hoverstat's chapter, um, he he says that eighty uh, percent of change projects fail, and um, I read that, and you know, it's that seems rather discouraging. I, I was just wondering, do, do you think that systems approaches improve the odds of success, or, or do do you think that this quote really just reflects that organizations have? Um, they, they give up too easily. They've set unrealistic expectations. Their, their, their KPIs, if you will, around success are maybe not the right ones. I'm just, I was just curious about this, um, this statistic and, and what to do with it. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not quite clear on what basis, uh, Patrick sort of has drawn that, that, that conclusion. Although I wouldn't, I wouldn't question it. He's, he's a very experienced, um, uh, consultant practitioner, Patrick. Um, I mean, I think I think he's probably right that eighty percent of of projects do fail, and the, the the key thing there though is that not so much that they fail, but there's there's no learning from the failure. Mm-hmm. And I make this distinction between um, a safe fail environment and working in a safe fail environment as distinct from a fail safe environment. Um, and it seems to me that our, the way in which organisations work, they work under you know that that um, that notion of foul safe. That they, if if something fails, then there's got to be a culprit to it, and there's got to be some remedial sort of action on that culprit, as it were, as a blame factor involved with it. Whereas in a safe foul um, environment, there is a learn, there's an opportunity to learn. And one of the great systems thinkers. That I that influenced me is um, West Churchman, Charles West Churchman, American, actually at Berkeley College. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's from your part of the woods in California. Um, Churchman was writing in the in the late sixties, well, early sixties, but um, late sixties, early seventies. In seventy two, he came out with a book called the Systems Approaches: The Enemies of a Systems Approach, and the principle mm-hmm. that he came out with there was really quite interesting it's just, you know basically you have heroic systems thinkers who can come out with very good ideas about good purposeful systems to make things work um but at the end of the day there's always going to be an enemy to the systems approach 
And if the big problem among systems practitioners is we don't take into account of those people who are disaffected by our systems approaches. So what Churchman was doing, in, in effect, was questioning this whole kind of win-win scenario that, um, that, that mm -hmm. organizational management buys into. Um, it's, it's not a win-win. There's always going to be losers. And very often, those losers can be the, the, the losers that we may want, that we may intend to be losers, but they can also bite back to the system. And they can therefore yeah. make the system fail. And it's not taking account of the um, disaffected, if you like, in your system's design that can actually cause the failure. And it also can cause mm -hmm. the non-learning from that failure. I mean, the important thing right. around systems thinking in practice is not so much that things fail, but, you know, you've got to learn from the failure. And now good systems thinking in practice, particularly that third aspect of the heuristic, reflecting on the boundary judgments requires that learning process. It's adaptive learning. Right. Yeah. Right. I love that. Um, so as as you've mentioned and you listed the five the five approaches that that uh, are covered in the book and we don't have time to go into all of them but since you're here with me um and and not the other authors uh who you include in the book let's talk about the 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 chapter that that you um wrote with Werner Ulrich i and i just happen to really like this and you have touched on it a little bit already but um the critical systems heuristics and uh, boundary critique is is what you talk about, um, and I really liked this um, this idea that its particular focus is on working constructively with opposing perspectives, the tensions around these opposing perspectives, and I, I think that 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 just felt really timely, like right for the, you know this conversation, this this you know. We're, we're, we have 2020s behind us. We're, we're a few months into 2021, but you know, this feels like it's very topical and, and relevant, this, this kind of approach. Um, what, what do you think about that? And, and, and how, how do you see it applying to, you know, some of the, the things we're dealing with at the moment? Yeah, there are, there are two aspects to, to that chapter. Um, I, Werner Ulrich was a student of, um, of West Churchman. So very, very much influenced by the work of, of West Churchman. And that book that I, I just mentioned, The Systems Approach, The Enemies of a Systems Approach, Systems Approach and Its Enemies, um, was written by West Churchman at the same time that he was tutoring um, uh, Werner on his PhD. Um, and it's so uh, the, 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 the book contributed directly to the whole idea of critical systems heuristics. What Werner did really very capably and fantastically is to render the um, churchman's ideas into, into what he called a reference system. Um, so the reference system has these four sources of influence. And again, it's just a way of mapping the reality according to four different sources of influence. Um, and those sources are sources of motivation, control, sources of knowledge and sources of legitimacy. And it seems to me that you can look at any situation in the world, doesn't matter what kind of level you look at that situation, that complex mess that's out there, you can try to understand it using that lens of a reference system of CSH. 
in terms of a political ecology, is what I would call it, um, of, of, of what's going on regarding those influences. So those four influences I would describe mm-hmm. in terms of who, who gets what, sources of motivation, um, who owns what, sources of control, who does what, who, uh, sources of, of knowledge, and who mm-hmm. suffers what, you know, the enemies of the system. Mm-hmm. Who suffers mm-hmm. what? It's got a, yeah. a, a really key thing, sources of legitimacy. So there's a template there offered by CSH, Critical Systems Heuristics. The other thing that Werner did little bit later, but I mean, he was trying to articulate a methodological approach behind the use of CSH. And that was what, um, what he, he called boundary critique. And it's, it comes okay. from um, a really strong tradition of American pragmatism, the work of William James, John Dewey, and, um, uh, and, and, uh, uh, can't remember his other name, <laughs> but anyway, the, the, the American pragmatism tradition, complemented with the critical social theory, uh, Germanic tradition that sort of um, was, was very much rooted in Immanuel Kant and, and uh, more contemporary okay. uh, thinkers like uh, Jürgen Habermas, who, who was very influential on, on, on Werner Ulrich. So boundary critique is this idea of, and boundary critique is, is underpins actually the whole step heuristic that systems thinking heuristic of those three legs understanding interrelationships engaging with multiple perspectives and reflecting on boundary judgments because what he's basically saying is that there are these three different types of judgments there's the boundary judgments which we make about a system so in terms of a a csh system it would be those boundary judgments associated with um with those four sources of influence um, but, you know, you can apply that to any system, whether it's a complex adaptive system, a system dynamics model, um, it would have mm. certain boundary judgments and whether it's a soft systems methodology type thing or whether it's a cognitive map associated with strategic options, development analysis, um, doesn't really matter. When you create, create a system, you're making boundary judgments, but those boundary judgments are influenced by two other sets of judgments. Um, first of all, the factual judgments, what we see, what we perceive as being reality out there. But there are perceptions of reality. So science is really key to that. The, the, the discipline of science, whether it's social science or natural science, really important. Um, but it's not the only way in which we capture reality. Of course, we use we use all sorts of different forms of of. Uh, of, of methods to capture reality, including poems, literature, music, dance, whatever. I mean, you know, there's, there's pictures, there's all sorts of ways of capturing that reality, but they are reality judgments, they're judgments of facts. And then there are, of course, the value judgments. And this is where the people, again, the person, that agency of the user of a systems approach comes in. Not only the, um, the the systems thinking practitioner, but also those people working with the systems thinking practitioner in order to try to make those systems okay. work. So there's those. It has that tripartite use of value uh, uh, judgments, factual judgments, and boundary judgments, and that's what underpins the whole. Incredibly useful. Practice heuristic as well. Got it. Yeah, that is that is incredibly useful. That's a very helpful explanation. Um, so we need to start to wrap up the conversation and, uh, there's so much more we could, we could talk about. Um, I, 
I, I love the, the bit in the book um, around um, the interaction between systems and the communities of, of, of practices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to me, what, what this kind of speaks to is, is a lot of, you know, the, the, the discussion around, um, you know, what created the, the difficulties and, 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 and the messes um, and, and what we're, you know, it, whether we're talking about, um, you know, uh, the Green New Deal here in, in the United States and, uh, you know, the, a lot of the concepts there and or decolonization, um, you know, the end of capitalism and concepts like donut economics, you know, this whole idea that the system, so-called, that, that created the problems or the issues, the, the messes, uh, can cannot be the ones that fix the issues that we're that we're dealing with, and I just I, I wanted I wanted to know what you thought about that comment. It's something I, I I seem to read all the time, and then you know the relationship between that statement and and the approaches that you that you lay out in the book. Um, yeah, so the idea, and, and this is coming from from Einstein actually, Albert Einstein famously said that um, you can't fix the, uh, the the problems with the same methods that cause them sort of thing um, and it speaks again to the idea that we, we we construct systems in order to solve problems those problems move on they change because you know they're part of a reality they're not fixed systems they become other problem situations for other people so it's always a change in flux there um, so you've got to have that adaptability of the system. So you can't stay with the same system. You can't stay with the same tools. And, and we can see that tools themselves might be regarded as systems. Um, and again, we, we make that point very clear within, the, um, within our courses, in our teaching. Um, so it, I, I, it is important to keep that sort of sense, that, again, that distinction between the system and the situation. Um, so that when we are looking at problems, we tend to look at problems, um, first of all, in a very defined way. Um, so we bound them up without any concern about how, how we are making those boundary judgments. But we are also bounding them up often in a kind of linear fashion so that uh, there's one particular influence that influences another, that influences another in a very sort of monocausal linear way and that's the the sort of way of hierarchical decision making which is infiltrated and implicit in most decision making uh, uh, forms of, of governance whether it's in uh, an organization or, or, or in a, in a, in a, on, on a national or regional scale um, and of course that linearity that system of linearity um, doesn't allow for the feedback which is so important um, with, within, within a systems o- overview. Um, and it causes failure. It, it goes back to Patrick Hoverstar's thing about um, 80% of projects being failed, failed projects. It causes failure because there's lots of other different influences going on. And you've got to try to um, look at your boundary judgments with fresh eyes um, and, and, and reversion them. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to dump all of the tools that we currently have in management. I'm very much wary of this notion that you've got to 
stop all of the all of the all of the management tools and stuff that we have and just go over to this new so-called paradigm of systems thinking i'm very wary of that um because i actually think that it's you can use the same tools in as inventive a way to deal with those understanding of interrelationships, engaging with perspectives, and reflecting on boundary judgments. You can do that in an inventive way. Um, you don't need to have yet more tools and more methods. You yeah. know what I mean? So you don't... Sort of... I totally know what you mean. And 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 so just to pick up on that, I'm going to do something that's really obnoxious. I, I, I know that... That, that people generally hate this. And that's when an interviewer reads the very last sentence from a book. Um, spoiler alert. Um, but I, I think it's very appropriate to, to, to do that. And if, if maybe if you could be on that, that same page, I don't know if you have the book in front of you, um, but I really like how you say, um, in relation to the artisanal skills of a systems thinking practitioner, Mary Catherine Bateson, that the late uh, Mary Catherine Bateson, uh, who just passed away recently, reminds us of the way of the world to which systems approaches covered in this compilation, um, Martin, that you've provided, continue to serve as a continually creative endeavor. I, I, I love that. And I think that really kind of speaks to what you were, you were just saying. And so just as we, as we finish up here, if, if you have the book open, would you mind reading that, the quote that you provide from Mary Catherine Bateson at the, at the very end of the book? Yeah, sure. And it is a lovely quote from, from uh, Bateson. It is. So she says, it's confusing, but we have a right to be confused, perhaps even a need. The trick is to enjoy it, to savour complexity and resist the easy answers, to let diversity flower into creativity. Yeah, I love that. Well, Martin, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. I've, I've very much enjoyed it, Kevin. And thank you for this opportunity. Pleasure has been, it's been all mine. So you've been listening to my conversation with Martin Reynolds, co-author of Systems Approaches to Making Change, A Practical Guide. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Systems and Cybernetics. Bye for now.